Section 7 of the Romance of Modern Mechanism. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tina Ding. The Romance of Modern Mechanism by Archibald Williams. Chapter 6 internal combustion engines oil engines engines worked with producer gas blast furnace gas engines if carbon and oxygen be made to combine chemically the process is accompanied by the phenomenon called heat if heat be applied to a liquid or gas in a confined space, it causes a violent separation of its molecules and power is developed. In the case of a steam engine, the fuel is coal, carbon in a more or less pure form, the fluid, water. By burning the fuel under a boiler, a gas is formed which, if confined, rapidly increases the pressure on the walls of the confining vessel. If allowed to pass into a cylinder, the molecules of steam, struggling to get as far as possible from one another, will do useful work on a piston connected by rods to a revolving crank. We here see the combustion of fuel external to the cylinder that is under the boiler, and the fuel and fluid kept apart out of actual contact. In the gas or oil vapor engine, the fuel is brought into contact with the fluid, which does the work mixed with it and burnt inside the cylinder. Therefore, these engines are termed internal combustion engines. Supposing that a little gunpowder were placed in a cylinder of which the piston had been pushed almost as far in as it would go, and that the powder were fired by electricity, the charcoal would unite with the oxygen contained in the saltpeter and form a large volume of gas. This gas, being heated by the ignition, would instantaneously expand and drive out the piston violently. A very similar thing happens at each explosion of an internal combustion engine. Into the cylinder is drawn a charge of gas containing carbon, oxygen, and hydrogen, and also a proportion of air. This charge is squeezed by the inward movement of the piston, its temperature is raised by the compression, and at the proper moment it is ignited. The oxygen and carbon seize on one another and burn or combine, the heat being increased by the combustion of the hydrogen. The air atoms are expanded by the heat and the work is done on the piston. But the explosion is much gentler than in the case of gunpowder. During recent years, the internal combustion engine has been making rapid progress 
ousting steam power from many positions in which it once reigned supreme. We see it propelling vehicles along roads and rails, driving boats through the water, and doing duty in generating stations and smelting works to turn dynamos or drive air pumps, not to mention the thousand other forms of usefulness which, were they enumerated here, would fill several pages. A decade ago, an internal combustion engine of 100 horsepower was a wonder. Today, single engines are built to develop 3,000 horsepower, and in a few years, even this enormous capacity will doubtless be increased. It is interesting to note that the rival systems, gas and steam, were being experimented with at the same time by Robert Street and James Watt, respectively. While Watt applied his genius to the useful development of the power latent in boiling water, Street, in 1794, took out letters patent for an engine to be worked by the explosions caused by vaporizing spirits of turpentine on a hot metal surface, mixing the vapor with air in a cylinder, exploding the mixture, and using the explosion to move a piston. In his and subsequent designs, the mixture was pumped in from a separate cylinder under slight pressure. Lenoir, in 1860, conceived the idea of making the piston suck in the charge, so abolishing the need of a separate pump, and many engines built under his patents were long in use, though, if judged by modern standards, they were very wasteful of fuel. Two years later, Alphonse Baudet-Rochus proposed the further improvement of utilizing the cylinder not only as a suction pump but also as a compressor since he saw that a compressed mixture would ignite very much more readily than one not under pressure. Rochus held the secret of success in his grasp but failed to turn it to practical account. The Otto cycle, invented by Dr. Otto in 1876, is really only Rochus's suggestion materialized. The large majority of internal combustion engines employ this cycle of operations, so we may state its exact meaning. One, a mixture of explosive gas and air is drawn into the cylinder by the piston as it passes outwards, that is, in the direction of the crank, through the inlet valve. Two, the valve closes and the returning piston compresses the mixture. Three, the mixture is fired as the piston commences its second journey outwards and gives the power stroke. Four, the piston, returning again, ejects the exploded mixture through the outlet or exhaust valve, which began to open towards the end of the third stroke. Briefly stated, the cycle is suction, compression, explosion, expulsion, one impulse being given during each cycle, 
which occupies two complete revolutions of the flywheel. Since the first, second, and third operations all absorb energy, the wheel must be heavy enough to store sufficient momentum during the power stroke to carry the piston through all its three other duties. Year by year, the compression of the mixture has been increased and improvements have been made in the methods of governing the speed of the engine so that it may be suitable for work in which the load is constantly varying. By doubling, trebling, and quadrupling the cylinders, the drive is rendered more and more steady and the elasticity of a steam engine more nearly approached. The internal combustion engine has arrived so late because in the earlier part of last century, conditions were not favorable to its development. Illuminating gas had not come into general use, and such coal gas as was made was expensive. The great oil fields of America and Russia had not been discovered. But while the proper fuels for this type of motor were absent, coal, the food of the steam engine, lay ready to hand, and in forms which, though useless for many purposes, could be advantageously burnt under a boiler. Now the situation has altered. Gas is abundant, and oil of the right sort costs only a few pence a gallon. Inventors and manufacturers have grasped the opportunity. Today, over 3 million horsepower is developed continuously by the internal combustion engine. Steam would not have met so formidable a rival had not that rival had some great advantages to offer. What are these? Well, first enter a factory driven by steam power and carefully note what you see. Then visit a large gas or oil engine plant. You will conclude that the latter scores on many points. There are no stokers required, no boiler threaten possible explosions, the heat is less, the dust and dirt are less, the space occupied by the engines is less, there is no noisome smoke to be led away through tall and expensive chimneys. If work is stopped for an hour or day, there are no fires to be banked or drawn, involving waste in either case. Above all, the gas engine is more efficient, or, if you like to express the same thing in other words, more economical. If you use only one horsepower for one hour a day, it doesn't much matter whether that horsepower hour costs four pennies or five pennies. But in a factory where a thousand horsepower is required all day long, the extra pence make a big total. If, therefore, the proprietor finds that a shilling's worth of gas or oil does a quarter as much work again, as a shilling's worth of coal, and that either form of fuel is easily obtained, you may be sure that, so far as economy is concerned, he will make up his mind without difficulty 
as to the class of engine to be employed. A pound of coal burnt under the best type of steam engine gives but 10% of its heating value in useful work. A good oil engine gives 20 to 25%, and in special types, the figures are set to rise to 35 to 40%. We may notice another point is that while a steam engine must be kept as hot as possible to be efficient, an internal combustion engine must be cooled. In the former case, no advantage beyond increased efficiency results. But in the latter, the water passed round the cylinders to take up the surplus heat has a value for warming the building or for manufacturing processes. Putting one thing with another, experts agree that the explosion engine is the prime mover of the future. Steam has apparently been developed almost to its limit. Its rival is but half-grown, though already a giant. Some internal combustion engines use petroleum as their fuel, converting it into gas before it is mixed with air to form the charge. Others use coal gas drawn from the lighting mains, poor gas made in special plants for power purposes, or natural gas issuing from the ground. Natural gas occurs in very large quantities in the United States, where it is conveyed through pipes under pressure for hundreds of miles and distributed among factories and houses for driving machinery, heating, and cooking. In England and Europe, the petroleum engine and coal gas engine have been most utilized, but of late, the employment of smelting furnace gases, formerly blown into the air and wasted, and of producer gas has come into great favor with manufacturers. The latest development is the suction gas engine, which makes its own gas by drawing steam and air through glowing fuel during the suction stroke. We will consider the various types under separate headings devoted 1. to the oil fuel engine, 2. the producer gas engine and the suction gas engine, 3. blast furnace gas engines, with reference to the installations used in connection with the last two. All explosion engines, excepting the very small types employed on motorcycles, have a water jacket round the cylinders to absorb some of the heat of combustion, which would otherwise render the metal so hot as to make proper lubrication impossible and also would unduly expand the incoming charge of gas and air before compression. The ideal engine would take in a full charge of cold mixture, which would receive no heat from the walls of the cylinder, and during the explosion would pass no heat through the walls. In other words, the ideal metal for the cylinders would be one absolutely non-receptive of heat, in the absence of this, engineers are obliged to make a compromise and to keep the cylinder at such a temperature that it can be lubricated fittingly, while not becoming so cold as to absorb too much of the heat of the explosion.
Oil engines. These fall into two main classes. A. Those using light, volatile mineral oils, such as petrol and benzoline, and alcohol, a vegetable product. B. Those using heavy oils, such as paraffin oil, kerosene, and the denser constituents of rock oil left in the stills after the kerosene has been driven off. American petroleum is rich in burning oil and petrol. Russian in the very heavy residue called astakti. Given the proper apparatus for vaporization, mineral oils of any density can be used in the explosion engine. The first class is so well known as the mover of motor vehicles and boats that we need not linger here on it. It may, however, be remarked that engines using the easily vaporized oils are not of large powers, since the fuel is too expensive to make them valuable for installations where large units of power are needed. They have been adopted for locomotives on account of their lightness and the ease with which they can be started. Petrol vaporizes at ordinary temperatures so that air merely passed over the spirit absorbs sufficient vapor to form an explosive mixture. The jet carburetor, now generally employed, makes the mixture more positive by atomizing the spirit as it passes through a very fine nozzle into the mixing chamber under the suction from the cylinder. On account of their small size, spirit engines work at very high speeds as compared with the large oil or gas engine. Thus, while a 2,000-horsepower quartering gas engine develops full power at 85 revolutions a minute, the tiny cycle motor must be driven at 2,000 to 3,000 revolutions. Speaking generally, as the size increases, the speed decreases. Of heavy oil engines, there are some dozens of well-tried types. They differ in their methods of effecting the following operations. 1. The feeding of the oil fuel to the engine. 2. The conversion of the oil into vapor. 3. The ignition of the charge. 4. The governing of speed. All these engines have a vaporizer or chamber wherein the oil is converted into gas by the action of heat. When starting up the engine, this chamber must be heated by a specially designed lamp similar in principle to that used by house painters for burning oat paint off wood or metal. Let us now consider the operations enumerated above in some detail. 1. The oil supply. Fuel is transferred from the storage tank to the vaporizer, either by the action of gravity through a regulating device to prevent flooding, or by means of a small pump, or by the suction of the piston, which lifts the liquid. In some engines, the air and gas enter the cylinder through a single valve, 
in others through separate valves. 2. Vaporization As already remarked, the vaporizing chamber must be heated to start the engine. When work has begun, the lamp may be removed if the engine is so designed that the chamber stores up sufficient heat in its walls from each explosion to vaporize the charge for the next power stroke. The Crossley engine has a lamp continuously burning. The Hornsby acroid depends upon the storage of heat from explosions in the chamber opening into the cylinder. The best designs are fairly equally divided between the two systems. 3. Ignition of the compressed charge is effected in one of four ways. By bringing the charge at the end of the compression stroke into contact with a closed tube projecting from the cylinder and heated outside by a continuously burning lamp by the heat stored in some part of the combustion chamber, that is, that portion of the cylinder not swept by the piston, by an electric spark, or by the mere heat of compression. The second and third methods are confined to comparatively few makes, and the diesel oil engine, of which more presently, has a monopoly of the fourth. 4. Governing All engines which turn machinery doing intermittent work, such as that of a sawmill or electric generating plant connected with a number of motors, must be very carefully guarded from overrunning. Imagine the effect on an engine which is putting out its whole strength and getting full charges of fuel if the belt suddenly slipped off and it were allowed its head. A burst flywheel would be only one of the results. The steam engine is easily controlled by the centrifugal action of a ball governor, which, as the speed increases, gradually spreads its balls and lifts a lever connected with a valve in the steam supply pipe. Owing to its elastic nature, Steam will do useful work if admitted in small quantities to the cylinder. But a difficulty arises with the internal combustion engine if the supply of mixture is similarly throttled because a loss of quantity means loss of compression and bad ignition. Many oil engines are therefore governed by apparatus which when the speed exceeds a certain limit, cuts off the supply altogether, either by throwing the oil pump temporarily out of action or by lifting the exhaust valve so that the movement of the piston causes no suction, the hit-and-miss method as it is called. The means adopted depends on the design of the engine, and it must be said that Though all the devices commonly used effect their purpose, none are perfect, this being due rather to the nature of an internal explosion engine than to any lack of ingenuity on the part of inventors. The steadiest running is probably given with the throttle control, which diminishes the supply. On motor cars, 
this method has practically ousted the hit-and-miss-governed exhaust valve. But in stationary engines, we more commonly find the speed controlled by robbing the mixture of the explosive gas in inverse proportion to the amount of the work required from the engine. The diesel oil engine, on account of some features peculiar to it, is treated separately. In 1901, an expert wrote of it that the engine has not attained any commercial position. Herr Rudolf Diesel, the inventor, has, however, won a high place for his prime mover among those which consume liquid fuel on account of its extraordinary economy. The makers claim, as the result of many tests, that with the crude rock oil costing in bulk about two pences a gallon, which it uses, a horsepower can be developed for one hour by this engine for one-tenth of a penny. The daily fuel bill for a 100-horsepower engine running 10 hours per day would therefore be 8 shillings 4 pences. To compete with a diesel engine, a steam installation would have to be of the very highest class of triple expansion type of not less than 400 horsepower and using every hour per horsepower only one and three-quarter pounds of coal at nine shillings per ton. Very few large steam engines work under conditions so favorable and with small sizes three to four pounds of coal would be burned for every horsepower hour. The diesel differs from other internal combustion engines in the following respects. One, it works with very much higher compression. Two, the ignition is spontaneous resulting from the high compression of the charge alone. Three, the fuel is not emitted into the cylinder until the power stroke begins and enters in the form of a fine spray. Four, the combustion of the fuel is much slower and therefore gives a more continuous and elastic push to the piston. The engine works on the ordinary auto cycle. To start it, air compressed in a separate vessel is injected into the cylinder. The piston flies out and on its return squeezes the air to about 500 pounds to the square inch, thus rendering it incandescent. Just as the piston begins to move out again, a valve in the cylinder head opens and a jet of pulverized oil is squirted in by air compressed to 100 pounds per square inch, more than the pressure in the cylinder. The vapor meeting the hot air burns, but comparatively slowly, the pressure in the cylinder during the stroke decreasing much more gradually than in other engines. Governing is effected by regulation of the amount of oil admitted into the cylinder. In spite of its high compression, this engine runs with very little vibration. The writer saw a penny stand unmoved on its edge on the top of a cylinder in which the piston was reciprocating 500 times a minute.
engines worked by producer gas. These engines are worked by a special gas generated in an apparatus called a producer. If air is forced through incandescent carbon in a closed furnace, its oxygen unites with the carbon and forms carbonic acid gas known chemically as CO2. Because every molecule of the gas contains one atom of carbon and two of oxygen. This gas, being the product of combustion, cannot burn, that is combined with more oxygen, but as it passes up through the glowing coke, coal, or other fuel, it absorbs another carbon atom into every molecule, and we have C2O2 or 2CO, which we know as carbon monoxide. This gas may be seen burning on the top of an open fire with a very pale blue flame as it once more combines with oxygen to form carbonic acid gas. The carbon monoxide is valuable as a heating agent and, when mixed with air, forms an explosive mixture. If along with the air sent into our furnace, there goes a proportion of steam, further chemical action results. The oxygen of the steam combines with carbon to form carbon monoxide and sets free the hydrogen. The latter gas, when it combines with oxygen in combustion, causes intense heat so that if from the furnace we can draw off carbon monoxide and hydrogen, we shall be able to get a mixture which during combustion will set up great heat in the cylinder of an engine. In 1878, Mr. Emerson Dawson invented an apparatus for manufacturing a gas suitable for power plant, the gas being known as producer or poor gas the last term referring to its poorness in hydrogen as compared with coal and other gases. While the hydrogen is a desirable ingredient in an explosive charge, it must not form a large proportion since under compression it renders the mixture in which it takes part dangerously combustible and liable to spontaneous ignition before the piston has finished the compression stroke. Water gas, very rich in hydrogen, and made by a very similar process, is therefore not suitable for internal combustion engines. There are many types of producers, but they fall under two main heads, that is, the pressure and the suction. The pressure producer contains the following essential parts. The generator, a vertical furnace fed from the top through an airtight trap and shut off below from the outside atmosphere by having its foot immersed in water. Any fuel or ashes which fall through the bars into the water can be abstracted without spoiling the drought. Air and steam are forced into the generator and pass up through the fuel with the chemical results already described. The gases then flow into a cooler enclosed in a water jacket through which water circulates and on into a scrubber, 
where they must find their way upwards through coke kept dripping with water from overhead jets. The water collects impurities of all sorts, and the gas is then ready for storage in the gas holders or for immediate use in the engines. A pound of anthracite coal thus burnt will yield enough gas to develop one horsepower for one hour. Suction gas plants. With these, gas is not stored in larger quantities than are needed for the immediate work of the engine. In fact, the engine itself, during its suction strokes, draws air and steam through a very small furnace, coolers, and scrubbers direct into the cylinder. The furnace is therefore fed with air and water, not by pressure from outside, but by suction from inside, hence the name suction producer. At the present time, suction gas engines are being built for use on ships, since a pound of fuel thus consumed will drive a vessel further than if burnt under a steam boiler. Very possibly, the big ocean liners of 20 years, hence may be fitted with such engines in the place of the triple and quadruple expansion steam machinery now doing the work. Blast Furnace Gas Engines Every iron blast furnace is very similar in construction and action to the generator of a producer gas plant. Into it are fed through a hopper situated in the top layers of ore, coal, or coke, and limestone. At the bottom enters a blast of air heated by passing through a stove of fire brick raised to a high temperature by the carbon monoxide gas coming off from the furnace. When the stove has been well heated, the gas supply is shut off from it and switched to the engine house to create power for driving the huge blowers. The gas contains practically no hydrogen as the air sent through the furnace is dry, but since it will stand high compression, it is very suitable for use in large engines. Formerly, all the gas from the furnace was expelled into the open air and absolutely wasted. Then it was utilized to heat the forced drought to the furnace, next to burn under boilers, and last of all, at the suggestion of Mr. B. H. Thraight, to operate internal combustion engines for blowing purposes. Thus, in the fitness of things, we now see the biggest gas engines in the world installed where gas is created in the largest quantities and an interesting cycle of action results. The engine pumps the air, the air blows the furnace and melts the iron out of the ore, the furnace creates the gas, the gas heats the air or works the engines to pump more air. So, engines and furnace mutually help each other instead of all the obligation being on the one side. When, a few years ago, the method was first introduced, engines were damaged by the presence of dust carried with the gas from the furnace. Mr. B. H. Thraight has, however, perfected means for the separation of injurious matter and blast furnace gas is coming into general use in England and on the continent. 
Some idea of the power which has been going to waste in ironworks for decades past may be gathered from a report of Professor Hubert after experiments made in 1900. He says that engines of large size do not use more than 100 cubic feet of average blast furnace gas per effective horsepower hour. Which is less than one fourth of the consumption of gas required to develop the same power from boilers and good modern condensing steam engines, so that there is an immense surplus of power to be obtained from a blast furnace if the blowing engines are worked by the gas it generates, a surplus which can be still further increased if the gas is properly cleaned. It is estimated that for every 100 tons of coke used in an ordinary Cleveland blast furnace, after making ample allowance for gas for the stoves and power for the lifts, pumps, etc., and for gas for working the necessary blowing engines, there is a surplus of at least 1,500 horsepower. So that by economizing gas by cleaning. In developing the necessary power by gas engines, every furnace owner would have a very large surplus of power for his steel or other works, or for selling in the form of electricity or otherwise. Yet all this gas had been formerly turned loose for the breezes to warm their fingers at. Truly, as an observant writer has recorded. The sight of a special plant being put up near a blast furnace to manufacture gas for the blowing engines suggests the pumping of water uphill in order to get water power. Messrs. Westgarth and Richardson of Middlesbrough, the John Cockerill Company of Saran, Belgium, and the Delevergne Company of New York. Are among the chief makers of the largest gas engines in the world, ranging up to 3,750 horsepower each. These immense engines, some with flywheels 30 feet in diameter, and cylinders spacious enough for a man to stand erect in, work blowers for furnaces or drive dynamos. At the works of the manufacturers mentioned. The engines helped to make the steel and turn the machinery for the creation of brother monsters. This use of a byproduct of industry is remarkable, but it can be paralleled. Furnace slag, once cast away as useless, is now recognized to be a valuable manure, or is converted into bricks, tiles, cement, and other building materials. Again, the former waste from the coal gas purifier assumes importance as the origin of aniline dyes, creosote, saccharine, ammonia, and oils. We really appear to be within sight of the happy time when waste will be unknown, and it therefore is curious that we still burn gas as an illuminant when the same. If made to work, an engine would give more lighting power in the shape of electric current supplying incandescent lamps. End of section seven.